We're all excited if we're Nebraska Cornhuskers. Um, that would be most of you, not all of you. We're still praying for the rest of you. Um, but we're excited. And people are there. And people showed up because it's a new leaf, new coach, uh, and it's all about this, this new era. But what I found interesting is how many people yesterday wanted to talk to a different coach about the new season. How many people sure wanted to talk to Scott Frost and staff, but how many of the people wanted to talk to Tom Osborne? Why would so many people want to talk to Tom Osborne when he's not even the coach? The obvious answer, and I quote, is Tom Osborne is Nebraska football. Tom Osborne is Nebraska football. We would say that because he defines it by what he has done. Or as one person said, it is impossible to understand Nebraska football apart from understanding the man who coached 25 years and won three national championships. That's why we say Tom Osborne is Nebraska football. Because it's impossible to understand Nebraska football apart from what he has done. We're not going to talk about Nebraska football today. So you Hawkeye fans, Wildcat fans, the rest of you, rest at ease. But it does help us to understand something regarding God. So leaving that aside, we are going to talk about the fact that the Bible says this regarding God. God is love. God is love. That's what 1 John says. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4 today. And what it doesn't mean is God is love because love is God sort of thing. It's not talking about the essence of who God is. It is the very core of his being any more than Tom Osborne is Nebraska football. That doesn't even make sense. But it makes the point that is an important point if you're going to understand God and you're going to understand Christianity and you're going to understand love because it's so easy to be confused about love. God is love because it's important possible to understand love, true love, unless you understand what God has done. And in particular, we're going to see in 1 John chapter 4 what God has done in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has sent His unique Son to atone for, to pay for, our rebellion so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might have assurance of salvation, so that we might have a confidence of these things. God has done that. He has done the greatest act of love ever imaginable. It ends up being the standard by which every other action of love is compared to. It's astounding. It's amazing. It's a great statement. And we're going to see it in context. The reason John says God is love is because he then goes on to explain what God did in his son Jesus to show his love. And it's impossible to understand love, 
true love, genuine love, ultimately, if we don't understand what God has done for us in Christ. 1 John chapter 4, if you're not already there, here's what's happening in 1 John regarding love. Even way before time begins in 1 John, God tells all human beings they're supposed to love. From the very beginning when God's commandments were written on people's hearts, and God spoke about these things as well, and it's in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we're supposed to love God, and we're supposed to love our fellow human beings. And none of us have met the requirement. So it starts with love. It's the right thing to do. We don't do the right thing. So God loves us and gives His Son the righteous, gives His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, lack of loving. God responds with love so that we can have a restored relationship with God, so that we can be new creatures in Christ, so that we can be born a second time by the power of the Spirit and renewed. We're, learning, we're going to learn that in First John chapter 4 so that we can then, as restored human beings, act like human beings, truly and genuinely, because now we're called to love. And now we can, and now we do because of God's love for us. So I'll reiterate this along the way, but we've got to start by remembering we're supposed to love and we don't. That's why we need, in First John, atonement, propitiation, those other important realities. We, 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 need, we, ha, we have guilt, we have sin, because we don't love. So God responds by loving us and providing those things for us. And now that we've had those things provided for us, and now that we're made new, made alive, born into the family of God, those kinds of words are used on purpose. We have new abilities, we have new desires. To use an old good word, we have new affections to live like real people. In 1 John, a big part is assurance of salvation. And this is one way you get assurance. You understand the big picture. This is the requirement. I don't, I don't meet the requirement. God has met the requirement for me in Christ, in essence. And now I want to live in light of what God has done for me. And if I do that by God's grace, I can be sure that God is for me, not against me. That's how it'll end in 1 John chapter 4 today. The other thing that's happening in 1 John is John the Apostle, the one who was with Jesus, is combating. He's fighting. He's protecting. He's fighting false teachers, false prophets, people who claim to talk for God, who are robbing people of their assurance and who are doing things like teaching confusing things about love, things that aren't true, that don't understand the purpose and the plan of this is what we're supposed to do. Some of those false teachers are saying we're good and we don't sin. Yeah, we, we love enough. We learned about them in chapter 1. Or they're thinking somehow that Jesus didn't do enough or that J Jesus didn't meet the, problem, meet the, uh, 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 the need or that God didn't love us enough or appropriately, or we could do it on our own. Or some of the false teachers are saying, it doesn't matter how you live. You don't have to love other Christians. And John is going to help us all to understand, supposed to love and we don't, the way we're supposed to. God loves us 
first and solves our problem. And now that we're new in Christ, we actually are supposed to live this way. And if you can understand that, you can understand most things regarding God and regarding how to live your Christian life. So what we're going to do this morning is look at verses 7 to 21. With uh, The opening verses 7 to 12 will be review, and I'm just going to basically read them with some comments. And then we're going to work all the way through 21. Um, John is not easy to follow here. Usually that would just be an excuse from a preacher. Right? But even John scholars say, John is not easy to follow here. I listened to one guy say that it's because John was getting so old. Um, I'm going to be real careful to say things like that because I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. <laughs> God uses personalities. Um, but, but John has a way of, of not being that easy to outline, but he can be easily understood. When, when we read this, we'll understand what he's getting at. But he's going to talk about it here and then take a little bit of a different angle. And then he's going to repeat himself what he says over here and then take a little bit of a different angle. And then he's going to... A little hard to follow, easy to understand. Not a cop-out, just a reality. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's, let's easily understand what he's getting at. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Here's why. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Super basic. He's talking to Christians who've been loved by God. They didn't love the way they were supposed to love, so they're loved by God. And now he's saying, let, let, we're believers. Let, let, us, let us love one another. We've been born of God. This only makes sense. Then comes a negative contrast, verse 18. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 8 goes on to say, because, or, or where it says, because God is love. Then verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest or clear or revealed among us that God sent His only Son, His unique Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. That's what he means by God is love. Look what he did for us. Then verse 10, in this is love. As in definitively, as in this defines love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Pretty easy to understand. Now, unbelievers have it wrong. False religions have it wrong. It's, and this is love, that we love God, and then He responds by loving us. No, not at all. And that's going to lead you down the road to confusion. That's false teaching. We didn't love. We learned about this in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We've got sin. We also learned about it in chapter 4. Maybe 3, I don't remember. Probably. Safe guess. We have sin. We don't love the way we're supposed to. It's God's love. And now we should love because of God's love. Really straightforward. And this has moral ramifications in your life. Verse 11 is just repeating verse 7. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like this, in particular through His Son, we also ought to love one another. 
And I stressed last time, and I'll stress it again, the ought part is important. We ought to have done it here, and we didn't, so God does this for us, and now our otter is fixed. I'm trying. When we get confused about where the ought fits in, we easily drift into something other than biblical, historic, authentic Christianity. There is a place for the ought. Ought to begin with. And we don't. It's called sin. God graciously, freely loves us and sends His Son. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And now we're born of God, new creation. We're no longer spiritually dead, put it that way, to borrow from the Apostle Paul. And now we have a reinstated, reinvigorated ought. And now it's out of gratitude, if we want to use that expression. It makes lots of sense. But I guarantee you, if you want to play a good missionary today, if you start talking in these terms, you don't have to use John's terms exactly, but if you start speaking with people who are church-going people, who are not church-going people, and you try to just work them through these things, you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed. Go for it. Help people with their assurance, if they're believers. Amazing. Okay, how about verse 12? No one has ever seen God. Referring to God the Father, no doubt, because this book stresses the revelation of God in Christ. No one has ever seen God. Verse 12 then says, If we love one another, which is what we're called to do as believers in the, the ought phase of being restored, if we love one another, God abides in us. That's relationship language. God abides in us. We've got a good, positive relationship with God. And His love is perfected in us. When this is happening, when when you're loving another Christian, and as I keep mentioning, there's other places in the Bible that talk about loving non-Christians and just loving people in general. But here's Christians. When you're loving another Christian and, and they're loving you and when there's love among believers... He says, God's love abides in us. It it remains, it continues, it's existing and flourishing and there's a good positive relationship. And then notice what he says again, His love is perfected in us. Um, That word is going to be used multiple times, but the word perfected... um, doesn't mean sinless perfection because in chapter 1, remember, if you say you are sinlessly perfect, you're a liar. I liked what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous preacher in London, supposedly said uh, when he met a woman who I think got off the train and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I just want you to know I don't sin anymore. And Spurgeon said he stomped on her foot. And then they both knew she still sins. Read, read the Bible in context or you're going to be a cult leader or a cult follower. He's already covered the sinless perfection issue. So what is he in chapter 1? What's he getting at? When we, when we love one another, he says, His, God's love is perfected in us. 
It's brought to maturity. It's 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 run its course in a good sense. It's it's been successful. Let's go back to these three stages that no one can see on the audio. We're supposed to love. That comes from God. God tells us to do that. And we don't. God loves us in Christ. And with that, makes us new creatures. We're born of God. And now, we are able and called to, as we ought, to love because of what God has done. That's in this, the love of God is perfected. Restoration. Back to acting like real human beings. I think that's what he's getting at. How about verse 13? And this we know, I love the confidence kind of terminology, and this we know that we abide, we continue to remain in a vital living relationship with God in Him and He in us. So it goes both ways because He, God, has given us His Spirit. If I can borrow from the Apostle Paul for a second, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Where is this coming from? This is coming from God doing this. Back to this point here, God doing this in Christ, and now we're able because of His Spirit that's been given to us. How about verse 14? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. He's back to that love thing. That's how we know. Before we move on, let's just look at verse 14 and and make an observation I think is important for us. And this, man, we have seen and testified that the Father and there's where we get into trouble. We get all creative. We go nuts and write weird books and say weird things. And we have seen and testified that the Father has enormous wings, blue eyes, and yellow hair. So people say. But I think it's so interesting. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. See, when we, we don't keep the focus where the focus is meant to be, no wonder we don't have assurance and no wonder we listen to false teachers. It's meant to be. We, we've seen the ultimate thing to see. The love of God. Well, what does that look like? It looked like specifically He sent His Son to to atone for our rebellion. That's love and that sets the stage for all of our ethics. And so we've got theology, the understanding of God and how He's acted in His love and now we're going to try to live in light of what He's done for us. That's what He does here. And now He does what preachers do. He goes off on this gospel tangent. But I want you to remember that He's doing what He's doing to stoke the fire, if you will. Okay? To, to, to motivate you, to motivate me to do the right thing. And the way to motivate you and me to do the right thing is to focus on what God has done for us and the outflow, the response, the reaction is for us to do the right thing. So he keeps going back to the gospel. Why do we keep talking about Jesus? All right already. Just tell me how to love. He is. Keep understanding Requirement to love, and you don't. God loves, and with that love brings restoration. 
And now we're called to do the right thing. So he says in this little gospel tangent, let's go with it. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique one, the eternal one, John chapter 8, right? All that he is, whoever confesses or agrees that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. He took us backward for a second. How do we have a relationship with God? It's not by oughting. We have a relationship with God because of what God has done for us in Christ and by believing in Him. Then verse 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So He brings us back to center. So He can then launch back to ethics and morality because it's grounded in the centrality of God's love for us. Verse 16 goes on to say, God is love. And whoever abides in Him, abides in love, abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, again, reaching its God-intended aim, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. It's a lot going on there. He brought us back to center. God's love for us, but then he's starting to launch us over here into what we ought to do. We abide in God. God abides in us. We've got a right relationship with God in and through Jesus. And he's going to get ready again to say, so, so, so you ought to be behaving differently. I like it that he used the perfected thing again. By this is love perfected supposed to love and we don't. God loves us and brings all the benefits of Christ with that to us. And now we should live like people who've been loved by God and have a relationship with God and now imitate God and now that we have new life we do what God asks us to do. That's all he's saying. So, so when I... Let's just pause for a second. When, when I am terrible at loving someone else, in my failures, there's different ways to help me. There are different angles. Maybe there are different times. But really it comes back to, Pat, this is what God requires of you. And you know what, Pat? You're not very good at it. You could use stronger language. But this is church, so I won't. But Pat, you need to understand that in your state of rebellion against God, not loving Him and not loving neighbor as you're called to do, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and appropriately as yourself, just remember, Pat, that while you were in that state, God loved you and sent His very own unique, extraordinary Son the righteous, the law upholder, to be in your place and to then atone, to propitiate, to satisfy God's wrath because you deserve to be under God's wrath. But through God's love, He satisfies His own wrath in and through His Son, Jesus. That's how much He loved you and that's how He loved you. Not when you were lovely, Pat. And now, Pat, in light of what He's done for you, I'm going to remind you essentially what we were reminding you to begin with. 
but as a new creature in Christ, having seen what God has done for you in Christ. You ought love. And you ought love not just when other people are lovely because now you've betrayed the gospel. You just showed us you didn't really understand center. And by the way, let's think about that. If you choose to love the lovely, how's that going to work out? I mean, in a sense, you'll be good at it. You just won't love anyone. The truly lovely, if we're talking about truly deserving, you'll have to leave planet Earth to find those people. Because we're saved sinners. You, oh, I know what you could do. You could say, but, but, but I just love God. Right? Maybe that's a little bit about what's going on here. I'm going to love the worthy one. Yeah, okay, great, I'm with you. Thank you for having good theology, in part. But you've never seen God. But you have seen the work of God in loving you, and you weren't lovely. And by the way, you can actually see other Christians who are in the new category loving other people who aren't lovely. And you can be encouraged by that because you can know that's where God is abiding. God is working. That's where the, 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 the God kind of love is functioning and happening and thriving. In that sense, you've seen God because you've seen God's love at work. The extraordinary power of God. Again, this is not hard to understand. It's very hard to do. But we make it harder than it even has to be. I do love what he says there. I hope you love it as well. My prayer for you is that you love it. In verse 17, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. Confidence in the day of judgment? There are are entire religions with tons of people involved who say you can't have confidence in judgment on the day of judgment because that would be arrogant. And in some ways, I'm sympathetic to that. Confident in the day of judgment before the God who sees everything and who knows our motives? Confidence in the day of judgment? And John is trying to give us assurance of salvation and he's saying, you can have confidence facing the day of judgment. How? Let's go back to these three positions. This is what we're supposed to do in loving God and neighbor and we don't. There's no confidence in that. God has loved us in Christ, the righteous. Oh, in my place. He's the upholder of that law. Oh, He's the propitiation, the the satisfaction, the atonement for my sins, my sins of not loving appropriately. Oh, He's that? My my assurance meter's going up. Day of judgment. Maybe, but... Can you give me a little bit more assurance? I mean, that's, that's the right place to start, but could, could, could you just help me out a little bit more? Well, if through the gospel, God has 
birthed us anew spiritually by the power of the Spirit that He has given us, guess what? We're now over here and now we have new desires and new affections and now we have an ought that functions out of a gospel kind of background. My friends, John the Apostle is saying, this is how you can have confidence facing the day of judgment. I've come to believe in Jesus. And and He's made me new, and I have new desires and affections. Perfectly? No, then we need to go back to chapter 1. Oh, then we need to go to chapter 3 because we won't be made like Him, perfected until we see Him. But I can have confidence because I'm believing in Jesus and my believing in Jesus is showing up. I look like a person who's not spiritually dead anymore. I look like a person who belongs to the family of God because I'm a God imitator. It's amazing. No fear and condemnation. That's because of propitiation. That's because of Christ's righteousness. And it's because of the work of the Spirit in us. Hopefully you're seeing by now too, you're seeing the the amazing, this is, I mean, you're seeing the Father involved. You're seeing the Son involved. You're seeing the Spirit involved. And they're all working. They're complementing one another for our benefit. That's why Christians say they're Trinitarian. He's for us. It's awesome. The resultant work of the Spirit leads to a renewed ought. How about verse 18? There is no fear. Okay, context is what? He just talked about day of judgment. There is no fear of the day of judgment. That's supplied by verse 17. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in the day of judgment in love. But perfect love, this matured love, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How about verse 19? We love because He first loved us. Repetition. 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 No fear. I'm not afraid. I'm not here to try to take your assurance away. I'm here to try to encourage you with assurance. That actually your assurance comes from trusting in Christ, which leads to an influence in your life, and both are designed to give you assurance. Day of judgment. I hope you sleep well tonight if you're believing in Jesus. If you're not believing in Jesus, I hope you can't sleep. Because there is a day of judgment. You're still over here. God says, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. (sighs) Have fun with that. You can't meet that requirement. Be afraid for coming judgment. I would suggest starting a workout program. You might want to go get a checkup. 
you should probably start taking vitamins. You might want to enroll in maybe graduate classes, PhD, trying to disprove the resurrection. And I'm speaking nonsense. There is coming a day of judgment. And we'll be judged based upon whether we loved God perfectly and loved our neighbors perfectly. And it means we're all smoked. That's why the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. So God loves us, sends His Son to be our righteousness, the one who loved perfectly, God and neighbor, and then negatively to atone, to take away the guilt. And if you believe in Him, we've seen in First John, you have eternal life. And with eternal life, you also have been born of God. Newness, new life, and now you're over here in this category, the third category, where he says to Christians, you ought. Did you notice? Hopefully you've noticed. Category one of the three categories essentially is the same as category three. Love, love. We're back to doing what God asked from the very beginning, which is good and appropriate. But we have a new relationship. We have a new status with God, category two, in Christ. How about verse 20? If anyone says, I love God, you can supply the accent. Just think of that person that really likes to talk about how much they love God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 21. And this commandment, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. uses that law word, commandment. Commandment, Jesus says, boils down to love God, love neighbor. That's the commandment. We don't do it. God loves us, provides new relationship, new status, new standing, new abilities. And now we're back to the commandment. Are Christians under law? Trick question. By the word commandment is the word for law. There's so much confusion about this that robs so many people of their assurance. Or it gives people assurance that shouldn't have assurance. Christians are definitely under commandment, under law. But they're in a new status. They're facing judgment with confidence because they're in Christ. Not for their status. They have a new status. I told you the story before riding my bicycle. Sorry, I shouldn't use bike illustrations. Let's pretend like I wasn't doing that. I was driving a rental car um, 
in Florida, in Lake Mary, uh, driving by, um, and I see a church, and the church's motto was loving God and loving neighbor. It's kind of a trick question. Good motto? Got some thumbs up. Depends what you mean. Is it true that we're supposed to love God and love neighbor? Yeah, Old Testament and New Testament. And Jesus says that summarizes the whole thing. What a great motto to have. Love God and love neighbor. That's what all Christians are called to do. That's what all people are called to do. That's really what First John is saying to you, believer. You ought to do the right thing. Love God and love neighbor. And by the way, that, that, that promotes assurance. That could be the motto of Omaha Bible Church. Loving God and loving neighbor. But if we mean in the first category, loving God and loving neighbor, because it, it can be there, we're smoked. Self-righteous. Look at us. We're loving God and loving neighbor. I love God, right? It is, by the way, why we tend to put crosses in churches and not the law. But make no mistake about it, on the cross, Jesus satisfied the law's requirements. The New Testament teaches that. So it is a legal reality. These are interesting things to think about, and they're not that complicated. Law church. Should we be law church? I'm getting my exercise up here today. Yeah, we should be law church. Loving God, loving neighbor. Because of God's love for us. Should we be law church in this sense? Why, yeah. If we think about it the right way, we're going to preach the reality that this is what God requires. I just did it this morning. I preached law. Love God and love neighbor perfectly. Got to do that or... This won't make sense as far as the work of God in Christ. But if you leave it there, you've not talked about the perfected love of God running its course, bringing this to fruition. This is not complicated. But we can make it complicated. And oftentimes it just means, what do you mean by that? Some of you asked me this week what I thought of a church calling itself Love Church. Yeah, let's preach the law to everybody because that's saying Law Church. Let's do that. I, I did it this morning. And then we have the love of God in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And now we're supposed to love other people because we ought and we're in Christ. What a great name. If we mean the right thing. How should we end this sermon? God requires that you live like a real human being, the way He made you to, loving Him and loving neighbor. Category one, none of us does it. God loves us in Christ and meets the obligation and takes away the guilt. Not that we love God. We didn't. 
He loved us. And now, as restored individuals, living in light of our sure place in Christ, we ought love. It's not that complicated. Are Christians under law? The Bible says no. And the Bible says yes. Depending on what you mean. We're not under law to gain favor with God because we can't do that. But we now are under law because we have favor from God. I think Pastor Chris Peterson, he he can do this better than I can do it, but he talks about, do you receive the law of God from Moses? Or do you receive the law of God from Christ? He would do a better job explaining it. That's not the perfect explanation. But to do this, to be accepted by God, is that how you receive it? That's not good. That's not where we're going. But now in Christ, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, a new law, which is really the same old law, but you have a new position in God. If that's too much theology for you, I just hope it's not. I hope you leave motivated to love other people because you've been loved. And that will change the world. And that will change your life. And that will change this church. But we need to keep coming back to what Christ has done to be reminded that we live in light of that out of gratitude for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the fact that love really is where it's at. But we, we don't understand what that means so many times and, and Christians don't understand what that means so many times. Thank you that you loved us and sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our sins of not loving. Our desire would be to live in such a way that it's obvious that God abides in us and we abide in God. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.